0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: It's Recode Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. And today, we're sending you on a journey with Recode's Peter Kafka through the history of... Believe it or not, HBO turns 50 next year, and the HBO of the 2020s has come a long way from the HBO of the 1970s. But before we get into all that, a quick question for you.
2: Hey, it's Tori, the audio fellow at Vox, and I could use your help with an episode of Recode Daily I'm working on for next week. I want to know if you have any super memorable experiences with shopping on social media. For example, when I was 17, I found the prom dress of my dreams on Tumblr. It was a beautiful baby blue ball gown with flower lace climbing up the back. The Tumblr post took me to Pinterest, which took me to another site where I bought the dress. But when I got it in the mail, just days before the junior prom, it was nothing like the picture. It looked like a blue potato sack. As soon as I saw it, I started crying. I was devastated. Thankfully, my mom let me buy another baby blue dress from a retailer we trusted that I ended up wearing. To this day, I've never directly bought off Pinterest again. I only use it for mood boards now. So what's your story about shopping on social media? I want to hear the good, the bad, and the just plain funny ones. Like, I don't know. Ordering a couch that looks normal but turns out to be pet furniture? Shoot me an email at RecodeDaily at Recode.net or on Twitter at Recode. Thanks.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a couple years. I got James Andrew Miller in here. He's written many books, and the one I'm talking about now is called Tinderbox. It is HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. It is a oral history of the 49-year history of HBO. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. I was just telling you off air, this is like a Christmas present, kind of written for me. As someone who's consumed a ton of HBO and then who's written about HBO and Time Warner and Netflix and Disney and the media business for years, you've pushed all that into one book, which means if you listen to this podcast, this book is also for you. So thank you for that. Well, my pleasure. I'm delighted you liked it. You have written about CAA, ESPN, Saturday Night Live, now HBO. Why is HBO worth 900-plus pages? How many interviews are in this book?
0: 757.
1: Okay, 757 interviews, 900 pages. Why is HBO worth that much work?
0: Well, I mean, look, I think it's a cultural force. It's a media force. Its history has been chock full of impactful moments and events that have shaped, further shaped the industry. And much like SNL and ESPN and CA, it started in the 1970s from the most humble of origins— with very, very low expectations, many, many more people betting against it than were supporting it. In fact, one of the fun things uh, about reporting early on in the book is just how many times Time, Inc., who was its parent, almost hit the delete key on it. And so I think that when you look at the totality, not just of HBO's content, but some of their technological plays and their impact on the culture, uh, I felt like it was something that you know, I wanted to spend several years of my life in. I can't I can't date these books. i got to marry them.
1: I'm glad you married this book. I, I started reading this book from the back third because I'm interested in the recent history and what happened with Time Warner and Fox and why the Time Warner Disney deal, which uh, you write about, never happened, uh, why Time Warner sold to at and why at and decided it didn't want to own Time Warner after all. Uh, I want to talk to you about all of that let's start just talking briefly about the history, how this thing did get started. You said it was a Time, Inc. project, uh, really just pretty much born in a closet, basically, Jerry Levin on a, on a camera talking to a couple hundred people in rural Pennsylvania. Why did HBO get started to begin with?
0: Time, Inc., its parent— uh, At the time, an enormous, time. powerful magazine publisher, now a, a subsidiary of, of IAC. Right, but it it was— the Varsity back then, and they wanted to diversify. They had already moved into cable. They were doing time-life films, and Chuck Dolan wrote them a memo, and they started investing in a company he called Sterling Communications. Chuck I think Dolan,
1: it, a regional cable operator.
0: Yes, even before. He was a, kind of an entrepreneur. But I think it's instructive to point out, and I think sometimes even people at HBO don't realize this, that HBO was never on its mm-hmm. own. You have never been able to buy a stock called HBO. And as a result, all these machinations, first with Time Inc., then Time Inc. and Warner merge, then Time Warner and AOL merge, then Time Warner, AOL, AOL, they finally divest of AOL, they have Time Warner, I know you know this very well, but then, you know, AT&T and now Discovery Warner Brothers. That creates a whole set of other circumstances and other exigencies that people running HBO have to deal with. And sometimes it was a boon and
1: sometimes it was a bane. Right. Sometimes they're being sheltered from market forces. Sometimes they're fighting for their lives because they have to justify their existence. What was the initial thesis and premise of HBO um, back when there are three television networks broadcast free to air? What is the point of selling something via cable TV?
0: Uncensored movies without commercials. And live sport events, uh, you know, for for the first fifteen years, maybe even twenty years of HBO's existence, particularly under Michael Fuchs, the main thread was to make sure that they were doing things that the networks didn't do.
1: Boobs, and this is this is important to me as a as a, as a teenager in in the beginning, not the beginning of HBO, but like eighties HBO, a place for boobs and boxing,
0: sex violence, cursing. George Carlin comes on and does his, you know, incredibly important concert with the seven words you can't say on television, violence. The networks had kind of kicked boxing to the curb. It's on in the afternoons. So HBO is able to seduce promoters by saying, we're going to put you on primetime and not to mention no commercials. And so its value proposition early on was pretty clear. And the problem was that they didn't have any money for programming, original programming. And then all of a sudden this thing called the VCR comes along and people can go to Blockbuster and get their own movies uncut and watch it when they want to watch. And so there was a significant paradigm shift in terms of getting into original programming in a deeper and more meaningful way
1: it's really interesting because again the last third of the book netflix figures prominently in in sort of what happens to hbo and time warner and, and they're trying to figure out responses to it and, H, and netflix is almost a character in the book but there's echoes of it as you, as i'm reading it there are there are lots of stor- plot lines that then remind me of there's a lot of resonance with Netflix. So one of them um, you just mentioned, um, well back up. So one thing that that HBO does relatively early on, is starts thro- spending a lot of money to buy movie rights which disrupts Hollywood. And there's even, I think, a, a Time magazine cover about HBO saying they're disrupting Hollywood. Through New York this. Magazine. a New, York, Was it New yeah. York Magazine. Okay. They, they the New are, York Times
0: Magazine, I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: They, are, they are throwing money around in Hollywood and disrupting the way the studios are used to doing business. Um, right? So if you follow Netflix at all, that will sound familiar. Uh, and then later on, as you just mentioned, the idea that, that movies are central to HBO becomes less important when you can go to Blockbuster and get any movie you want. So that pushes them into original programming. Again, if you pay attention to what Netflix has been doing for the last 10 years, that will also sound familiar. I assume that struck a chord with you as you were writing all this stuff.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things that I had to also report along the way is that the courts wound up being incredibly important. There were two big court cases that— enabled HBO to continue the way it did, because the studios figured out what HBO is doing, and they were pissed off, and so they started their own alternative paid network called Premiere. This and is going to
1: be their Hulu, right, if you're, if you're a, st- a student more of so. modern digital history.
0: I mean, it's like Exhibit A of Monopoly, and HBO was able to fight that back in court.
1: We want to stop selling our stuff to HBO because they're undermining our business. We're going to have our own HBO, or if we're going to have an HBO, which we should own it.
0: Exactly. And so that was the premier case. They beat that. Then there was a famous Betamax case uh, that was also win at HBO's back. And as a result, you start to see that the company is, you know, there, look, there were times when the company was in tremendous financial difficulty by their standards back then, Time Inc., because Time Inc. wasn't used to losing money. I actually added it up. I went back and kind of put together a little Excel spreadsheet and the company only lost fourteen million dollars that sounds like nothing to us now but there was one year where they lost three million dollars and basically Jerry Levin who was running the company at that time was told if you don't get to twenty thousand subscribers by July we're gonna we're gonna cancel this
1: and there was some financial engineering to make that happen
0: oh don't bet against Jerry Levin back then because he's given away free turkeys and he's not reporting cancellations I mean without that kind of like double maneuver HBO's basically canceled. You're
1: not being metaphorical about the turkeys. They're giving away free turkeys to induce people to, to get subscribe. HBO. Oh yeah.
0: No. Yes. And in fact, that is I think,
1: how small this operation was.
0: Yes. And remember, we're trying to get it to, they were trying to get to a threshold of only 20,000, which sounds nothing like nothing, but it was big. They started off with 348 homes. And so I think those, without those turkeys and without those you know, kind of like negligent cancellation reports, um, it doesn't exist.
1: Where does HBO first turn the corner to being a significant business and cultural force? What year
0: is that for you? 1976 is a very difficult year. Jerry Levin is replaced by a guy named Nick Nicholas, who's a Harvard MBA and is all about the money. And he basically turns it into a real business. Jerry was focusing on the programming part. And he turns it into a real business and they start making strategic alliances that make sense. They start having like covenants and all these things that corporations need. And that's also when Michael Fuchs gets there and starts putting together comedy concerts and music specials. And all of a sudden there are offerings on the content side that are total outliers You know, comedians have four and a half minutes with Johnny Carson and the network is doing a colonoscopy on every single word you're going to say. You have to tell them exactly beforehand. You can't use certain words. You can't use certain subjects. And so when you start talking to these comedians early on or these musicians like Bette Midler and others, it becomes the wild, wild west. They had a a constant and rather impressive parade of comedians and musicians that do these specials before they're in the series business. And I think that is th- – It's like they th- do the th- – they, the do, they
1: broadcast the, the Simon Garfunkel reunion. They're doing a oh giant uh, Barbra Streisand show, all this stuff that now seems like no big deal. Again, Netflix cranks these out daily. Um, all the other streamers are trying to do their own version of that, but there really was no other version. Again, this is back when there are three networks, this is pre-Fox. So the idea that you could get any of this stuff was revelatory. Plus, you know, you got Muhammad Ali fights, boxing, when boxing was still a mainstream thing. Um, all of that was new. And then I, I remember encountering them in the eighties and that was a place where you could see Porky's and Ninja movies. When, when did they make that shift into, we're going to start making original content that's meaningful and is a series?
0: So, look, there was some pressure early on to go into series in a big way uh, before Michael Fuchs was ready to do it. Chris Albrecht and Bridget Potter were running programming, and they had all these deals. In fact, Chris wound up threatening to quit, and then he started making shows for other networks. He made Martin. He made—I mean, there were other—Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, you know, could have been on HBO. I mean, Chris— Chris made it for CBS and with David Letterman's a team. Former uh, comedy club manager,
1: comedy manager, has that's his roots, is, is, is coming out of comedy and he's a talent guy.
0: He is a talent guy. It turns out that that's not a cliche and it's not to be overblown because there are people that come to work at HBO, particularly before it has a real track record, because they trust Chris. And this is, these are people like Tom Fontana, uh, you know, who did Oz for them. Uh, Michael Fuchs brought in Gary Shandling through Brad Gray, and Larry Sanders was obviously a, a very, very important show. And Important show, probably not not
1: in terms of money or viewership, but sort of for the creative community, right? Yeah,
0: that's such a great point, and uh, I appreciate you bringing that up because HBO decided to determine and define success for itself on totally different grounds. They didn't need a huge rating— First of all, there were no real ratings to speak of. They could declare something as success. And they what they wanted and what Larry Sanders did was it showed the Hollywood community this is a friendly place. I mean, you can make cool stuff here. You can make stuff you literally cannot make somewhere else. Gary turned in an episode once that was 20 minutes long. He once called up Jukes and said, I need to take a year off. I mean, it's like, you know, you can't do that at a network. And so as a result, I think those relationships become— very, very important. And HBO makes a point of saying, we're not going to be over your shoulder giving thousands of notes and telling you what should be and what shouldn't be. And uh, for the most part, for the next 10, 15 years, they do that. I mean, there are moments and there are episodes where, you know, the, the network wants something or whatever, but by and large, that was really something that was very special for HBO to do.
1: So, again, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about business. You do spend a lot of time in, in this book talking about individual shows, the stories of how some of these shows are made, stories of shows that didn't get to HBO or were considered failures. Um, you spent a lot of time on Gary Shandling and the Larry Sanders show, a ton of time on The Sopranos and Sex and the City. Um, and I'm assuming that's because you think those are sort of the most important that those and Game of Thrones are the most important shows on HBO. And 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 the Sex in the City Sopranos era was sort of strikes me as when when HBO was most important, right? It's it's the internet's around, but no one's streaming anything. If you you there's cable, but it's still pretty limited. The idea of prestige TV doesn't exist anywhere but HBO. And Sunday nights on HBO become a thing that everyone in America, or lots of people in America, are watching.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, some of those choices are fairly obvious, but within a very short period of time, HBO puts on Sex and the City, The Sopranos, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, you know, that trifecta elevates you in myriad ways particularly now, HBO is starting to clean up with the awards. So they're beating the networks at at the Emmys. They finally get to the Emmys after suffering through the Cable Ace Awards. And they start winning tons of awards for movies. Then they have these three very, very visible shows. And what that leads to is an era where you have Six Feet Under and The Wire and all these shows. Now, Sometimes when the Lord wants to punish you, he answers your prayers, because it's a lot easier when expectations are low, and you're like the little engine that could, and you're putting on these shows, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, look at what's going on.
1: What's the next Sopranos? What's the next sex what, in
0: the city? Right. And also, I, I take some time to talk about certain individuals at HBO, inside in, HBO, particularly Carolyn Strauss, they're the same person— in 1997, before any of those shows go on the air, but yet when you have a history of big hits, then all of a sudden people are, you know, if you keep somebody waiting for 15 minutes in the waiting room in 1997, you're you're just running late. If you keep some keep somebody waiting in the waiting room for 15 minutes after these shows have been on the air, it's like, oh yeah, they're arrogant. Oh yeah, they 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 think they're a big deal, and so as a result. You know, there's all these psychological repercussions that happen within this ecosystem with agents and suppliers and managers and stars even, and it gets a little difficult to manage. And not to mention the fact that it's almost impossible in the world of programming to, you know, be like nailing, you know, a a complicated dive with a perfect 10 every time. So... You know, what happens when you have a John from Cincinnati that follows The Sopranos? Which I think
1: most people listening to this this podcast will—what is that? Right. But at the time, that was supposed to be their big follow-up show.
0: That was the show that they decided to air after the uh, finale—after The uh, Sopranos. And um, it was by all—well, I mean— It's a failed show. They they thought it was going to be great. It was a failed show. It was a miserable experience. And it was an important lesson for HBO with how to deal with— failure when you're that visible.
1: So, like I said, Netflix is a major character in this book. I don't think—did you interview anyone from Netflix? I don't think so, right? No. Yeah, so they're referenced. Um, And I think the first time they show up in the book is 2005, 2006.
0: 2005.
1: There is a discussion about—you tell me.
0: So there's a big meeting in 2005, and uh, I don't think you can overestimate the impact that it had inside HBO because it's at a moment where HBO is— like literally staring at the proverbial fork in the road vis-a-vis direct-to-consumer and the way that the whole technology of so this business let's, is changed. So let's
1: stop here and pause. So, so up until just a couple of years ago, if you wanted to get HBO, you needed a cable TV subscription, and you paid for HBO by paying the cable TV operator. You never paid HBO directly. There was always a, They were in the wholesale business. Um,
0: and as a result, HBO didn't know who you were. They didn't know, you know, when you go on Amazon, you order a book, they're going to give you 10 other suggestions. HBO couldn't do that. They didn't even have your address, okay? They had no idea who you were because the cable operators had it, and the cable operators weren't letting go of it.
1: And so, the cable operators were the ones who marketed it. Those are the ones, and you had to, again, you had to have cable. You had to have a bundle of cable and then get HBO on top of that.
0: And had the cable operators come and install it and service it. So, they were at that mercy. I mean, look, it worked out for both of them for for a lot of time.
1: And Netflix in 2005 is a direct-to-consumer, really, they are streaming, but it's really a DVD by mail business.
0: Yeah, it's your red envelopes. And uh, some people, not many, as you well know, were able to look down the road, but others didn't. And so, in 2005, in this meeting, there's two things going on. One is... Let's go direct to consumer. Let's make our There's own. There's two sides of of HBO at this me, at this meeting, two fundamentally different approaches to the future. Chris Albrecht has a technology team out west of his own people, and they are saying we got to go direct to consumer.
1: We can see the future.
0: We can't we can't be at the mercy of the cable operators anymore. We have to go basically direct to consumer. And the second part of it is, let's by Netflix because they are going to be doing things that we can't. And that will be further a further way to distinguish ourselves uh, from protect ourselves from them in the future and distinguish ourselves in the marketplace. The powers that be in New York are terrified of this. They are afraid of Brian Roberts and John Malone and pissing off the- The guys who run the cable
1: business. They don't want to upset, they don't want, they're they're dependent on the existing cable business for distribution and revenue. They don't want to disrupt that apple cart.
0: Absolutely. And so- It goes to Jeff Bukas, who at that time was moved—he moved uptown in 2002 to corporate. He had
1: had run—he's a a business guy, CFO, ran HBO, gets bumped up to run all of Time Warner, eventually AOL, Time Warner, and then back to Time Warner again.
0: Right. When he's—he was CFO, CEO under Fuchs. When Fuchs is fired, he becomes chairman of HBO. And then in 2002, he's bumped up, and Chris Albrecht becomes CEO of HBO. So— Jeff is brought in, and both sides pitch. And he, I think, rightfully, but there's a nuance here. He rightfully says to Chris, "We can't do this. We're gonna, you know." I talked to John Malone and said, "If in 2005 HBO had started to go to DC, I mean, they would have, they would have killed them. They would, they would have just, uh, they were the cable guys. The cable said. guys would. What are you doing? You can't
1: compete with the business we're in already.
0: Can't do it." we're going to cut you off. And, and it's significant because HBO is still living by those sub fees. So what Jeff Bucas does at that point is he says, it's too early and we can't do it. Forget about it. Now, the thing that I kind of call Bucas on the carpet for is that he didn't Take basically, I think there was a spot in the middle. It didn't have to be binary in 2005. What I think they needed to do was really establish a rock hard technology team that would be developing options going forward, particularly even joint ventures with the cable operators, co opt them, make sure that they see that there's a possibility. Eventually, they'll get to TV everywhere and some other futile attempts to, uh, you know, kind of work on something with the cable operators, but it doesn't go well.
1: So the the alternative history, by the way, where where HBO Time Warner buys Netflix in 2005, 2006, doesn't mean that HBO Time Warner is now Netflix, right? It doesn't mean they're going to manage the business the same way. It certainly doesn't mean they're going to lose billions of dollars a year on original programming because that's not what Wall Street wanted from AOL Time Warner. They didn't want a money-losing company the way they did with Netflix. They wanted a, a company that made money.
0: Well, this is this is the part I think that, I don't know if you found this in your reporting or whatever, but when I had so many people say to me, you know, Time Warner Blueick, they could have bought Netflix in 2005. So let's just, three headlines out of that. First of all, I don't think Reed is selling in 2005 because he understands what he has. Okay, I don't, I, I did talk to some people on background uh, at Netflix and I see no evidence that they would have said, oh, here you go. The second thing is that, Time Warner is just emerging from one of the great rat fucks in media history, AOL. They have put their investor base through a ground war in Southeast Asia, and they are barely able to take a One of a the
1: worst corporate mergers of all time.
0: $200 billion in write-offs. I mean, you have to work really hard to get that. And so you think, and Netflix doesn't have any earnings, and Netflix is still, you know, kind of behind the eight ball in terms of what it's really, I mean, it's still a Trojan horse. It's... it's kind of secret in terms of what it's really going to wind up being. And so they can't go to their investors who are re- finally pleading with Time Warner get out, to get some earnings. And, 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 and like
1: get the, away from the internet, by the way. In 2005, get, no one was psyched about the internet. They were like, thank God we're done with the internet bubble. We can, right. go back to the, we can go back to the way things were.
0: Right. I mean, and by the way, the other thing is you also have the distribution in terms of like... Dial-up and what the modems were, and how how effective you're going to be able to stream back then. So, you know, one of the great ironies, by the way, is Jerry Levin wanted AOL, and Time Warner actually they had a great product in Roadrunner back then. It wasn't bad. It was much better than AOL's, but that's beside the point. Um, so there was no way that they were going to be able to do that, and. The third thing is that the money, look, Netflix was allowed to spend a lot of money and never had to show earnings, never had to show profit because their investors were counting on that. Time Warner could have never spent that money that Netflix did. And so as a result, that is the argument that I find a little bit intellectually lazy, although I admire the people like there's a great guy named John Penny who in 2005 was saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's just that it was too early.
1: I want to get to a little bit more recent history, starting with uh, Rupert Murdoch trying to buy Time Warner in 2014. Jeff Bukas says no. Uh, everyone assumes that Murdoch's going to win and win that uh, eventually is buy a Time Warner anyway. Um, how did Jeff Bucus fend off Rupert Murdoch?
0: Well, first of all, he was able to figure out relatively early that Murdoch was counting on a lot of Time Warner stock to even be able to pull off the the, the finance the deal and. He had support of his board. He also got a rule change where they didn't have to go to the shareholders directly, which was a big part of, you know, could have been a big part of Murdoch's campaign to appeal to shareholders and basically outmaneuvered him. The the thing that happens, though, is they defeat the deal. So Murdoch can't take them over. And the board takes a deep breath and says, oh, great. And then Bucus looks at the board and says, "Uh, no, we're not out of the woods yet. This is going to be a problem because too many people are going to want us. We're too vulnerable. We're in play now. We are basically—I'm telling you right now, we are in play.
1: This is one of the most interesting things. You've, got, I think 2014 you've got—and you've talked a lot to Jeff Bukas here, and to me it's one of the revelations of the book is—, is um, just getting to hear from Jeff Bucus without a PR filter over him about how he saw things, um, why he did what he did. He's again, he's a financial engineer, so that if you're into that stuff, there's a lot of detail. Um, but in 2014, he's saying we are going to have to sell this company or merge with someone. It's going to have to be a big tech company, most likely. He goes to Apple and tries to do a deal. Um, what was what? Why why is he waving? Basically, waving the flag. Well, then. he's
0: you know he's a he's a much more subtle guy, and he's got legal restrictions, right? He can't just all of a sudden turn into Willie Loman and you know put the company on Craigslist at the time. So it's a very but why does he decide, why does he know that the company cannot at the time, Time Warner,
1: enormously powerful company, HBO, the thing that everybody wants, why can't they go it
0: alone? In part because of the bundle, and you can't talk about. Time Warner, basically after 2012, even, um, without talking about the bundle. And you've got a company here who's got between the Turner the Turner revenues and the profits. I mean, they're enormous. HBO. This is,
1: is, their, this is their basic cable networks, right. TNT,
0: TBS. They are ad supported. And HBO is a crown jewel, but Turner's supplying 50% here. And you have a Problem, which is that the streaming universe is basically turning its back on the ad supported universe, right? Linear television. And so they have two choices basically build their own streaming universe, which again we just talked about, which some of the reasons in 2005 are still around in 2014. In fact, it's even more expensive to do that, to build it on your own. Or you try and somehow find a partner. That will give you air cover with the cable operators you still need, but allow you to do this. This,
1: By the way, he wasn't the only one to go, oh, the bundle is collapsing. Anybody who was remotely interested in media and tech said, oh, the, the, the cable TV bundle is on its way out. We saw what happened. We saw how uh, digital disrupted music, digital disrupted newspapers. It's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And I remember every quarter— Bucus would get on a conference call for earnings and say, there's no court cutting, and we don't need to sell HBO online. Everything's fine. Uh, but behind the scenes, he's saying we, we need to find a digital partner. But
0: By the way, uh, someplace that I kind of know uh, that's not doing that also is Disney with ESPN. I mean, ESPN's in 100 million homes around 2011, 2012. I mean, what's it in now, 73? I mean, they, the bundle was— an incredible problem. ESPN and Disney had always been worried about a la carte, as they called it, and they fought very hard, and they had great lobbyists feeding a la carte on the hill. But the truth is, it was a problem. I mean, this is why I always believe that Time Warner should have merged with Disney, and they would have, they could have spun off Turner's and Turner Networks and ESPN. That was the real play. I think it was a mistake. Look, Bob Bobaggar has said. An incredible run as one of the most impressive media executives of all time but jerky harvard mbas like me and who get to play monday morning quarterback can sit here and say oh well you know what i think you should emerge with time warner instead of fox but i i do believe it so how does time warner sell itself to at&t and then this is the
1: the the gazillion dollar question for me and i think it's going to come in part two of your book that you'll probably release in paperback how does 18 decide we shouldn't have bought Time Warner. Let's sell it off.
0: Yeah. So first of all, remember something, when you're talking about numbers this big, it's not a long list. You got Verizon, you got AT&T, Apple, you know, Disney. Uh, you know, there's just, I, I mean, there's really not a lot. Right. And so the thing that's interesting is, let me, let me answer your question this way. Let's take two parallel situations. Apple Tim Cook's got a ton of money. Eddie Cue loves content. Eddie Cue is very close with Bucus, Olaf, Plepler, whatever, knows the HBO ecosystem. And so that's scenario A. Scenario B is at t What Tim Cook decides is—
1: And to be clear, they had a conversation. They had multiple conversations about Apple and Time Warner doing some kind of— acquisition or a joint venture or a bundle. They have a bunch of different discussions.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's important, and I go into detail in the book, to talk about who that is because I don't, you know, I don't want to give the impression that Tim Cook and Jeff Bukas were having the conversations that Randall Stevenson at AT&T and Jeff Bukas were having. But nevertheless, what happens is Tim Cook looks at his company and says, look, you could We could throw our product line on a table. We do certain things, and we like to do them really well, and our investor base counts on us doing that very well. They want us to be in the iPhone business. They want us to be who we are right now, and we're not going to make, you know, an audacious, hubristic leap, let's say, into vertical integration. That's column A. Column B is John Stanky, who is fearless at the time. Is the deal guy at the time at AT AT&T. And Randall Stevenson, who's still chairman. It's important to point out, right? This gets done on Randall's watch, even though there's a 17-month delay from DOJ. And John Stanky decides just the opposite, which is we're really smart. We want to be in the content business. We have all these pipelines. We can do this. We are going to vertically integrate. And so as a result... When Jeff talks to Randall and then later to John, you have a much more receptive audience. And, in fact— You also have—Apple is still a growth
1: company year after year, cranking out iPhone after iPhone. People continue to buy them. at and is a slow-to-no-growth company.
0: They have $16 billion that they have to devote to their dividend. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot of cash. But the
1: point is they they need—the they, need, they they're, they're, the phone business is not going to grow— at a clip at that point. They're like, we need a new thing to put this money to work. We need we need another business. Let's go buy this content.
0: Right. And we also need something that's going to help us with DirecTV and other things that we picked up and all of a sudden getting content in your phones. I mean, you know, in some ways, if you were to listen to John Stanky or Randall Stevenson back then, I mean, there were some naysayers, but you can understand why they're thinking what they're thinking. Now, whether or not it was hubristic or not is beside the point. But the point is that Jeff has basically run the gamut. Verizon says no. Apple says no. Disney says no. And people didn't realize how vulnerable the company was going to be then if they didn't find someone.
1: And, and by, b- Meanwhile, by the way, we're going all over the place, but he has been stri- – Jeff Pukas has been stripping down Time Warner in part to make it – a better acquisition. He has gotten rid of AOL. He's gotten rid of the uh, music company. He's got rid of the publishing company. He gets rid of the cable company. So eventually, it's just this content company, uh, which makes it m- that much more appealing to an acquirer.
0: Right. I think he also... Look, some of these things, getting rid of AOL, That that isn't about finding a a partner or a buyer later on. That's about like, you know, moving out of Three Mile Island. I mean, it's a toxic waste dump and uh, thank God they could get rid of it. Uh, But I think that in terms of paring down the company, I think that's part of it. But also he was looking at businesses that are going to be driving earnings. Uh, I mean, it's so hard to judge a CEO, right? Because some people think, oh my gosh, you know, Bucus just sold the company. Like, Jeff Bucus, if you're a shareholder, you're a fan of Jeff Bucus. If you look at the shareholder return on equity from the time he gets on board, I mean, it's pretty stellar, and he doesn't need me to be being and, the one. And who,
1: he's and he. By the way, he he brings this up a bunch, like that he was able to boost earnings, but moving numbers around, like he's quite proud of his financial engineering.
0: Yeah, at the end of the day. Because HBO
1: doesn't really grow after a certain point. It sort of hits 38, 39, 40 million subs. It sort of stays there for
0: pretty much forever. The at guys were, when they talked about HBO, they were like, they need us. They're they're still in the 30s. I mean, where's the, where's the growth? It's nice to have, you know, big parties and everything else, but where's the growth? And so I think that Jeff does a lot of financial engineering. Sometimes the board doesn't even believe him. I mean, he gets... In front of the board at an early point in his career before he even gets to be chairman when he's still uptown as CEO, he says, we're going to, you know, we're going to increase earnings by X percent. And everybody is I laughing at him. And Ted Turner's in the room and says and starts pointing at him and laughing and goes, that guy wants all of our jobs. It's like, you know, and little did Turner know that Jeff was saying that in advance because he didn't want Turner to get the credit. He wanted the credit, well, for the company, not for Turner. And so it was, that was a chess move in and of itself. But I think that, you know, look, did it make it easier to sell a company without any of those entities attached? Absolutely. Did he care about losing Time, Inc., you know, magazines or something? No. And by the way, was he right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, by the way, he'd say, I can't imagine Time Warner without Time,
1: Inc., but of course he could. Um, so AT&T buys the company. Uh, then they get sued by the Trump administration and they're in court for a couple years. Then they finally have the thing free and clear. And not much longer after that, they decide, nope, we're going to sell this thing off. I'm still waiting to learn the day that John Stanky or Randall Stevenson, I guess it's John Stanky in this version, decides we have to get rid of this thing. He tells you, I've been looking at all kinds of ways to get rid or solve our Warner Media problem. Um, It wasn't that David Zaslav called me up and and put the idea in my head. I had a whole bunch of documents and he even says, when the DOJ comes and looks through my desk, you'll find them, which is, I think, a funny aside. And he gives a bunch of different reasons why he thought he needed to get rid of Warner Media after acquiring it a couple years ago for $100 billion. What was the thing that tipped it in your mind?
0: Well, first of all, can I preface this answer with one thing about the DOJ? We know Donald Trump was not a fan of CNN. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, the DOJ, files this, and they wind up delaying the acquisition, the formal acquisition, by 17 months. During those 17 months, a lot's happening in the world. And so, I to answer your question, I think during those 17 months, if we were to give John Stanky sodium pentothal, he's starting to get a little worried because— Disney Plus, and all these things are starting to accelerate. We're already
1: behind in the streaming wars, and Disney is doing much better than we imagined. Netflix is on fire. So we are at the starting line, and everyone else is now lapping us.
0: Exactly. And, and that was problematic. And so to the degree that Trump wanted to damage this new entity, I think they did it pretty good job of doing it. Although I do believe that, and I've had many people tell me this, that part of that was to get a settlement where CNN would be broken out uh, because of the DOJ suit. So then Rupert can get his hands on CNN or somebody else that is more Trump friendly. That didn't happen. But as a result, I think it starts to happen during those 17 months. And then I think something else happens, which is, you know, you've talked to Stanky. I mean, he's a very clear-headed business person in the sense that he likes it. You know, LBJ used to say, tell me, like, with the bark off. And I think that he starts to realize that this vertical integration thing that, you know, everybody talks about, it's a lot harder to do (laughs) than you thought. And it's also, most importantly, more expensive. This is where it gets back to what you had said earlier about AT&T and money. It's bizarre for us to think, but... AT&T really couldn't afford to do this new business, combined business, the way it needed to be done. They just didn't have the cash for it. That's—I believe
1: that. Um, and there were stories prior to the Discovery deal being announced that that Warner Media was having trouble funding HBO to the level they wanted, that Jason Kyler had really ambitious uh, plans for HBO and, and then had sort of had to pull back on them. But I don't understand how that is news to John Stanky, clear-headed businessman. Everyone knew what Netflix was spending on content before they went and bought Warner Media. They knew that this was a $15 to $20 billion uh, content commitment annually. So I don't understand how they buy the thing and then a couple years later go,
0: oh, this, th- that costs a lot more than we thought. Yeah, it's a fair question. And I think it's a question that a lot of AT&T shareholders, you know, asked at the time. And I would say that the only other corollary to that is I think on the revenue side, they were also saying, well, hmm, there's a reason why HBO is still in the 30s, you know, 30 million, you know, 30 to 40 million households. It's hard to, to grow that number.
1: Yep, but they so, confidently asserted that they were going to do it. They were going to do it. I, 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 to me, it's still. I feel like there's there's still got to be a piece there that we haven't heard about about someone rethinking this. Stanky has now said publicly, and he says in your book as well. By the way, the market didn't help us because we imagined investors would go, "Oh, you guys now own a Netflix. We're going to give you a Netflix-like share price," and they didn't go for it. So that also, we bought this thing hoping that we would transform our company's valuation, and that didn't happen either.
0: I think it's so funny. It's 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 why you. Uh it's why you dig the way you do, as a reporter. But I, you, you're looking at three pretty big headlines, Peter. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I mean, the fact that they got way behind in the streaming thing after they bought it, they realized they didn't have the money to finance it in a way that they could, and they realized that they weren't going to grow their way out of it in terms of coming up with extra revenue. I mean, I don't know what else you're looking for. Maybe, uh, you know, I mean, I tried to push John I, I talked to Randall Stevenson, too, about it. But those are three pretty compelling arteries. Um, In terms of a specific moment, I think that one of the things that emerged from my conversations with John were that I don't think it was. I think it was a compilation. it starts back and during the 17-month delay. And, you know, there's just—good news travels really slow after the transaction's announced like, it's like you wake up and it's like, okay, the DOJ then is this, then the HBO wants this much money. You know, you're looking at the ad sales on Turner. It's, that's difficult. I mean, the only thing I'll say about Stanky is he didn't shy away from admitting or basically admitting a mistake. He then becomes receptive. I think, I'm not sure whether Comcast was having conversations at that time.
1: But, that is part of the story that I have heard, right, is that Comcast wanted to buy Warner Media but couldn't because they're tied up regulatory. They, they couldn't do the deal quickly enough and that Discovery could.
0: That's a DOJ nightmare, in fairness to the Comcast people, that, you know, you can't suggest that deal and not think that you're going to have to go through things. Remember, they had gone through that when they wanted to buy Time Warner Cable and lost. Right. And so I think that that's part of it. And on the 18T side, even if— I don't know this for a fact, but even if Comcast is saying, listen, let's try and figure out a way about this, if you have John Malone and David Zaslav and Discovery where there's, it's kind of like a reverse slam dunk in terms of approval, and you need the cash right away, it's no secret where you're going to go.
1: We've been talking about the ins and outs of of business intrigue and and corp dev and and mergers and acquisitions, and I want to have a cigarette now, but um, (laughs) let's talk about programming because there is a ton in this book about the ins and outs of how these shows were made. Um, You spend a ton of time on The Sopranos, Sex and the City, uh, Game of Thrones, more time than I would have expected on shows like Entourage. What is your favorite yarn from behind the scenes, from the HBO shows we all love?
0: I think um, it's—look, we have a tendency, those of us who love The Wire, and a lot of people do, to think of The Wire as— this show that the great David Simon creates. And... Considered one of the goes, best show of all time. Right. Top five shows right. of all time. And, you know, it goes on and it's just, oh, my God, everybody loves it and it wins tons of awards and it's a no-brainer for HBO. Well, it turns out it wasn't a ratings killer. It didn't win many awards. And basically, Chris Albrecht, who's running programming, decides after a couple seasons, I've had enough. And... At the networks, I think it's fair to say that when that person says they've had enough— The person
1: running the network says we're done.
0: 99% of the time— The show's done. It's gone. What happens is that David Simon talks to Carolyn Strauss, who David is, Simon is
1: the creator of The Wire, former newspaper guy at the Baltimore Sun.
0: Right. And Carolyn Strauss is—I mean, she is the varsity. I, I think that people who don't know who she is, I hope, will come away from this book understanding— not only who she is, but how great she is. She is indispensable to HBO's success. He goes to Carolyn and says, "Look, I need to, uh, I need to appeal this before the Supreme Court. Can you basically I need to talk with Chris?" And Carolyn says, "Look, I mean Chris has already told me. I and mean, this thing is, you know, let let's just have a nice memorial. let's have a nice final episode." And Simon says, "No, I want to get in the office with him." And here's the first step. Albrecht says, come on in, because he respects David Simon, he wants to be in business with David Simon on other projects, he doesn't want to leave him bitter. David Simon comes into the office, and, you know, I mean, I could could do a two-hour documentary on this meeting, because what happens is, David Simon does a beautiful job of articulating a vision of why The Wire needs to continue, both in terms of story, characters, its importance to the society. I mean, like the stories they're trying to tell that no one else is out there exposing. And Chris Albrecht does something that not a lot of network executives do. He, God forbid, he listens. And at the end of that meeting, holy shit, David Simon has got two more seasons. By the way, this is not when HBO is overflowing with cash. I mean, the Wire is not a super expensive, not a Game of Thrones, it's not a, you know, uh, Rome, it's not any of these other. but it's still money. It's still money that could go to other shows. There were other shows that he wanted to do, but he listens and he does a 180. And David Simon goes on to do, you know, several more seasons of a show that was terrific. And those seasons that weren't going to appear, you look at them and you think, oh my gosh, thank God. You know, so, I mean, it might not sound like, oh, you know, there was a lot of arguing and all that stuff, but it turns out uh, passion and eloquence on the part of Simon and the ability to listen and really understand something on the part of Albrecht, you know, not to mention the fact that at that point, Bucus is giving Albrecht the power to do that, right? He doesn't, at a network, it'd be like, well, let's bring in the marketing people and uh, let's do some surveys and some test studies and all this. No, it's just... Chris Albrecht. So, for
1: almost all of its history, HBO is a unicorn in one way or another. Right? It either has stuff that you literally can't find somewhere else. Um, it's showing you movies at home when that wasn't a thing. Uh, it's doing original programming at a very high level when that wasn't a thing. Um, no one. It didn't really have a lot of competition uh, for a long period. What happens now? Because all those things I said aren't true anymore. Lots of places do what HBO does. Lots of people have, are taking interesting creative risks. Lots of people are throwing lots of money at projects. More everyone, money. Everyone wants to be HBO. HBO was just sold off in part because the AT&T couldn't really afford to compete and fund HBO slash HBO Max uh, against its competitors. So what, what is the future of this company? That special sauce no longer seems so special.
0: Right. So I think that, first of all, people are spending more money than HBO. So that's no longer, you know, the, the money that they used to spend on, I mean, my gosh, Band of Brothers and, you know, The Pacific and— And 1000000 dollars
1: premieres, by the million, way, for TV shows in Rome New York City. and
0: all these things. I mean, Game of Thrones was the most expensive show there. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But people are spending way more, right? And so they're in a situation now where they get pitched a show— Uh, you know, with Kevin Spacey and, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think we'll do, yeah, maybe we'll do a pilot on that. And uh, meanwhile, Netflix goes, we'll guarantee you two seasons, they say to David Fincher. Well, that is no longer a level playing field, right? And so you start to realize back then that this is what's going right.
1: on. Right, and in those early years when they were getting competition, the, the answer would be, and even when Netflix was really on fire, the HBO guys would say, well, that's Netflix and it's like a Walmart and they're just throwing a lot of stuff against the wall. We're HBO, we have a special curation, we give shows special attention. But as time goes on, that no longer looks so true. They're in the, They're also in the volume business. And lots of people are making lots of good stuff. It's great for if you're a TV consumer. It strikes me that HBO's value will be harder to... It'll be harder to make the argument that HBO is now a special place. It has lots of great shows. They do lots of great programming. It's hard to argue that they are going to be sort of above everyone else.
0: Well, one of my favorite quotes uh, from the ever quotable Ari Emanuel in the book is that uh, an HBO executive calls them after they've lost something or in the middle of a fight to get something. And the HBO executive says, well, look, but they don't have our brand and, you know, they don't have our capability. And Ari says, nobody gives a fuck about your brand anymore. It's like, you want to talk about a moment in time? That, if that's what's going on in the ecosystem, then, you know, that's, that's a big deal, right? And so, as a result, you start to realize that HBO is, it doesn't have any of the wind at its back that it used to have, right? And so, uh, and particularly since, look, you know, people made a big deal with me about talking about the fact that. HBO could have had The Crown. HBO could have had Breaking Bad. HBO could have had Mad Men. Mad Men was just written by Matthew Weiner, who worked on The Sopranos. David Chase literally delivered the pilot to Mad Men. Right. A lot Mad of the Men, stuff
1: that built HBO's competitors came through HBO's doors at various
0: times. Exactly. But, you know, look, you camp out a thousand, and I, I try and take each one of those situations— itself, Right, you go into great
1: length it. to explain why Matthew Weiner, who created Mad Men and worked for David Chase, was never going to create a show at HBO because no one wanted to take resources away from David Chase because he was making The Sopranos, for instance.
0: That was part of the reason, yes. Yeah. Um, but my only point is—
1: The other that, reason was that people didn't like Matthew Weiner.
0: At, uh, at the end of the day, the, the answer to your question is HBO does not have any kind of— tailwind. It's not further ahead with other people catching up, obviously. And as a result, the big question is, I mean, David Zasloff has made it clear that he is going to be very involved in the company. And is he going to, what's his game plan for HBO? Is it different than what Stanky's was? Is he going to be able to give them the money that they feel like they need to compete. Uh, What's their appetite gonna be? How are they gonna differentiate themselves in the marketplace? There, There are no givens for HBO right now. It's a very interesting time. I think that the next two to three years of HBO will determine the next decade of HBO. It's that perilous. I also believe that there's a larger Uber question, which is, is Discovery Warner Brothers gonna be enough for HBO? I joked around with David, when I said, this is great news because this deal is happening so I can sneak it into the hardcover and then by the time the paperback comes out, I'll be writing about who, who buys you guys. I don't think he thought it was that funny, but there's a possibility that that's exactly the case.
1: I mean the deal is that that Warner Brothers Discovery deal, assuming it gets approved, is structured to make it easier for them to then go around and, and sell it to somebody else. The, you know, and they don't have big, enough scale anyway. And presumably a big tech company. The big tech companies tell me we don't actually want to buy. We're, by merging Discovery and WarnerMedia together, it actually makes it less attractive to us because we don't want to buy a bunch of Discovery cable channels. We want to buy HBO. Of course, that's what you would say if you were a potential buyer. You don't want to talk about how much you want to pay for but it. But they do have a
0: scale problem. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea of them going it alone for the next five or ten years is, I think, somewhat prohibitive.
1: You built this career doing these— doorstop size books, years of your life, hundreds and hundreds of interviews, Um, ever think, man, I wish I could just just skip half this stuff and just write the story the way I want to write it and I don't have to go interview 700 people. I could interview half of them. I could tell a more discreet story um, that has a beginning, middle, end.
0: Um, Look, it would have taken me half as long. These, you know, I think that... um, By the
1: way, there is a a competitor. You have the uh, folks from the New York Times and and Businessweek are are producing their own HBO book that will come out, I guess, sometime next year. You guys are sort of racing neck and neck to put this thing out.
0: Godspeed to them. But, you know, the truth is that it would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot faster to just write it. I've been writing my whole life. It would have been, um, yeah, it would have been a lot easier. I guess the, the thing that I try and do with these books, though, is um, my favorite thing to do is to listen, is to listen to people talk about their careers and their lives and dig um, sometimes to get answers that haven't been told before. And as a result, um, it's a particular kind of book and I don't know if it's for everybody, but I think that the value proposition is you're, instead of me writing and characterizing certain things, you get to hear from these people directly. And by the way... Sometimes I want you to
1: say, this guy is full of shit. This guy said this, but he's wrong, because that's not really what happened. Or this guy says this, but it's flattering to himself. And instead you lay it out and you sort of let the reader decide if this makes sense or
0: not. Well, no, because there's a step before that. I, I, I do try and be Switzerland polemically. I mean, sometimes I can't, help myself. But there's a big step before that, which is people, I mean, you know, I did thousands and thousands of hours and I actually had a 1300 page draft. And then you have to go, I went back and reported things that it's one thing in the Rashomon kind of world. If someone, you know, has a place wrong or who's in a meeting or whatever, but if someone's just like, I turn out, it turns out face lying to me, then that's not going to get in there. So I'm already, you know, I'm not just like with a tape recorder, oh, blah, 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 and let's just put that in. I mean, there's, sometimes there's more reporting about what people say after they say it than there was before in preparation. The second thing is that because I control the narrative, and it is a narrative, you know, I can be somewhat, and I'll admit it, Machiavellian at times, or putting my own imprint on how the stories you told. were
1: deciding what excerpts to choose and whose excerpt to line up against someone else's but excerpt who also
0: has the last word sometimes yeah. or who you know juxtaposing quotes or anything like that so i think there is a lot more reporting that goes into it than might seem i'm not trying to say i'm doing the lord's work here but um, i think it's it's much more evolved. and to that point, it's a much bigger pain in the ass to do a book like this than just to down and write it.
1: Thank you for making it. Again, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. If you listen to this podcast, this book is for you because it's got everything.
0: Oh, thank you. Um,
1: and you can read it in chunks. You're not going to read it in one sitting. Um, it's going to take a couple sittings to get through this. But you can also pick it up, and, and there, are, um, there are stories that I didn't know I was interested in. Um, that, that are fascinating here, especially the early stuff and how how tenuous HBO was in its very early days. I'm really glad you made it and I'm glad you came and talked to me.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. It means a lot.
1: That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. A bunch, a bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.